0: We had an unusual moment culturally about 5 weeks ago, Monday night football when the Buffalo Bills were playing the Seattle or the Cincinnati Bengals, and there was a play where the safety of the Buffalo Bills, Demar Hamlin, tackled one of the runners of the Bengals and after that fell to the ground in cardiac arrest. Heart had stopped and on live TV in the middle of the game they're administering CPR for 9 minutes and eventually he's taken off the field. And taken to the ICU at the hospital. It was a huge, sobering moment on national TV, Monday Night Football. And you just heard a lot of people talking about the need for prayer. Uh, the Buffalo Bills were talking about the need for prayer, and all these people were tweeting how they're praying. And the next day, Dan Orlovsky, who's an anchor with ESPN's NFL Live, uh, obviously a believer of some kind felt that this was an opportunity for him to do what he does. And so here's what he did on national TV, on ESPN. I've heard it day. all
1: day, like thoughts and prayers. And you just heard Scherf and Jonathan Allen say like all we can do is pray for him. And I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say that like, we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I wanna, it's just on my heart that I want to pray for him. It is. Demar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head and I'm just going to pray for him. Um God we come to you in these moments that we don't understand that are hard uh because we believe that you're God and coming to you and praying to you um has impact. We're we're sad, we're angry. Um and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray. Truly come to you and pray for strength for Demar, for healing for Demar for comfort for DeMar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up DeMar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 Now, I've
0: been a sports fan for a long time. I've seen a lot of things. I've seen NFL players pray on the field. That's not anything new at all. In all my life, I've never, ever heard a sports anchor on national TV lead in prayer. Have have you? I I haven't. I'm not saying it's the best thing, uh, but he was doing what he felt like he needed to do. But it shows you the cultural moment that even those with him, and I don't know if the, the producer probably wasn't surprised by it, where amen, and we missed it there, but he says respect at the end, the the other guy. And it's just one of those cultural moments that Benjamin Watson, a former NFL player who spoke at this stage years ago, uh, he tweeted that week that prayer is what happens when you stare death in the face. Prayer is what happens when you stare death in the face. And you can see that happening that week all over in the national media and on the NFL. That's exactly what happens in Esther chapter three and four with Esther and Mordecai. By the time we get to chapter three of Esther, the book of Esther, it's been five years since Esther became queen. And she, in those becoming queen in those five years, she's had to make a lot of moral compromises. And she has hidden her... Jewish identity at the advice of her cousin Mordecai, but also she obviously agreed with it. So she is completely presenting as a Persian pagan woman. These five years being queen, to become queen and being queen, she has totally engulfed herself as a pagan Persian woman. And most biblical scholars will tell you that even her name Esther is derived from the Persian goddess Ishtar. That's her her name. And she is deep into the privilege of living in the palace. She has these attendants who are meeting her every need. She is wanting for nothing. Well, except for one thing. Xerxes has, by this point, emotionally moved on. And while she is sleeping alone at night, he is not. These five years have been hard on Xerxes. Remember five years before, these five years, five years ago is when he lost, he was defeated historically, a decisive defeat in trying to conquer Greece. He was defeated and he came back. And these five years have, at least the Xerxes that we read in the book of Esther, he is withdrawing more and more, not just from Esther, but he's withdrawing more and more from his responsibilities as king. And he's becoming deeper and deeper into hiding himself in the palace. And then it didn't help when there was a plot uncovered by his two bodyguards that were going to assassinate him, and now he's paranoid. And he's so del- because of his paranoia and because of his need for security, he has given more and more of his responsibilities of ruling the empire to a man that we're introduced to for the first time in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read that here, where it says, after these events, the uncovering the plot to kill him, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now remember that term, the Agagite. That's not something you say when you sneeze. That's, a, that's something we're gonna come back to. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this com- concerning him. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin, would not kneel down or pay honor, pay him honor. Now, it's not unusual that everybody would kneel to a superior. That was very much a Persian custom. And even when Alexander the Great, 150 years later, conquered Persia and became king of Persia it created a lot of drama that now his men had to kneel down to him. They were Greeks. They don't want to kneel down to anybody, but Alexander the Great demanded it because this is Persia after all. And so even in the Old Testament, it's not something that the Old Testament has any problem with. It's, It's faithful people have bowed down to Persian kings to show them honor. That's just what you do. It's not a worship. It's a way to show honor. And so... We don't really know why Mordecai is not bowing down to Haman. We're just told that Haman is an Agagite and Mordecai is a Jew. And that's enough. If we know our Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, that's enough. There are places in the world where the peoples are in conflict because of events that happened hundreds of years before. And that's what we're reading now in Esther chapter 3. It it, it says that Haman is an Agagite. An Agagite is a descendant of Agag, Agag. Agag was a king of the Amalekites hundreds of years earlier. And even hundreds of years before that, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were defenseless and they were tired and they were slaves being freed. And it was the Amalekites that attacked them in a sneak attack from the rear and were able to kill off their most vulnerable and weak and women and children. And there was an incredible battle that you can read about in Exodus chapter 17. I may have said Acts, but I meant Exodus back in the book of Exodus chapter 17, And ever since that battle, there have been centuries of where the Israelites and the Amalekites were trying to completely wipe each other out. And so now that Haman has found out Mordecai is a Jew, he's going to use his new power to settle an old score, finally. And so it says this in verse 8 Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. That's very suspicious. And he goes on, their customs are different from those of all other people. And they do not obey the king's laws. He's thinking of Mordecai not bowing to him that the king said he should. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, just thinking of you, let a decree be issued to destroy them. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, which is all of his authority, and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, saying, do with the people as you please. And with that, word was sent throughout the entire empire that on a certain date, uh, an entire population was to be exterminated, including women and children. So in a desperation, Esther's cousin Mordecai, who's out at the city gates, and he's out in in the courtyard, and he is... Protesting. He is in sackcloth and ashes. That's a way to embody death itself with dust all over him, like death itself. And that would be something that the Persians knew well because they did the exact same thing five years earlier when Xerxes lost in battle against the Greeks at Salamis. They too were in Susa, were in sackcloth and ashes. The Persians knew it very well, what it meant. This was his protest. And so it came to the attention of Esther from her servants about Mordecai out there in sackcloth and ashes. And so she sends word to him and he sends word back and he says, he says, you need to use your position. You need to go before the king and you need to beg for mercy and plea with him for your people. And she, but through her servant, sends back a message and she says, yeah, that, no, that's a big no. I'm not doing that. I haven't even seen the king for 30 days. He hasn't called for me for at least 30 days. And you know the law. If I go before the king unsummoned, I'll be executed. That was the law. Herodotus, the the contemporary at that time, tells us that was the Persian law. This is not just being something she's making up. And so Mordecai sends back a message. And The message he sends back is kind of now the pinnacle of the book of Esther. And he starts off and he says this, he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your father's family will perish what he's telling her is, look, Esther, you have a choice. You have a choice between perishing and perishing. You decide. If you stay Esther, I mean, remember, this is a time now where her, her two identities are colliding. We were told back in the earlier chapters that her Jewish name was Hadassah, but we haven't heard Hadassah, and she's not told anybody she's Jewish, and nobody knows. She's, she's Esther. She's the pagan Persian woman. And he says, if at this point you stay silent and you stay Esther and you stay safe in the palace, Hadassah, the name your Jewish parents gave you and the Jewish heritage that was given with that name will perish. It will disappear. And besides, eventually you'll probably be found out and killed with all the other Jews. That's a perishing that's a double perishing. You don't want that. And then he says something to her after that, that really is now the very pinnacle of the book of Esther. It's the very middle of the book of Esther. And it's in some sense kind of the point, the literary point, the literary thesis you might say, of the book of Esther. Here's the next thing that Mordecai says to Esther. He says, and who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, up until this time, God has been silent. Nobody's mentioning God. Nobody's praying to God. God is not speaking to anybody that's obvious to anyone, at least not in the book of Esther. But all of a sudden, we're given a phrase, even though it keeps God out of it, the meaning is pretty clear. Who knows that God hasn't brought you here for such a time as this? That was the message. And everything that Mordecai said to Esther that was sent back through her servants and said to her rocked her world we know it rocked her world she took a couple days to respond and she had to think about it and it did something because in that moment after what Mordecai had said to her a transformation happened inside Esther and she is not going to be the same because when she gives back her answer the Esther we hear in her answer is an Esther that we have not heard yet in the book in the story now here's what she says in her reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the last time Mordecai will ever give Esther instructions again. (laughs) Now Queen Esther is giving Mordecai instructions. And he goes and carries them out. Go. And he goes now all through the book of Esther. Esther's name appears 37 times, 14 of those times, only 14. When you think of 37 total 14 of those times, it's queen Esther. The others is just Esther, the Persian goddess woman, Ishtar Esther, but 14 of those times it's queen Esther. And all but one of those 14 times it's Queen Esther happens after Esther says those words, if I perish, I perish. Something happened, something happened in those times where she's thinking through what Mordecai said, a switch was hit that gave her incredible courage, that gave her incredible boldness. All of a sudden she knew her purpose for such a time as this. All of a sudden it made sense. And so she was able to say, if I perish, I perish. And she is in real danger. She is not exaggerating. If she goes to Xerxes unsummoned, it is the law. And, you know, we know Xerxes enough to know that he is ruthlessly impulsive. And this would be a legal moment. She is putting herself under his impulse to do what he can do, whatever he wants to do, and it's legal for him. It would be the norm for him. It would be the established Persian law for him to have her executed. She's depending upon his impulse being something that is not very usually impulsive about, and that's mercy. Because if he extends his golden scepter and extends mercy, she'll, be received. she'll, she'll receive mercy. But... This is Xerxes and it wouldn't be the first time that he gets rid of a queen for a newer, younger model and he can do it legally. And and she's been lying to him for five years. She's been telling him she's this Persian, she's this Ishtar type woman, she's this pagan Persian and when he hears from her that no, actually I'm Hadassah, and my parents are Jewish and I'm part of the Jewish community here in Susa and I'm not this mother Persia you thought I was. And I've been lying to you for five years and I haven't been a very good Jew. You've noticed that as well. And she's going to put a target now because she's going to identify herself with the very people that are targeted by his decree to be destroyed. Now She's not exaggerating. She's in danger. If I perish, I perish. Now, we know the rest of the story. She doesn't. Many of you, like Esther, have risen to a place. And if you're honest, you think about it, you know, you, okay, you admit it, that it's a, it's a combination of things. You've risen to a place that, if you're really honest, in large part, has been because of things that have been out of your control. I mean, you've controlled some things, but... There's been a lot of luck. There's been a lot of things out of your control. And if you're honest, you've had to make some flawed decisions, let's say. You've made morally compromised decisions to get where you are. And if you're honest, the people that are with you in your position would be surprised if they heard of your faith, if they heard of your identity as a follower of Christ, all of you have some kind of certain opportunity that's unique to you. All of you have this relationships that are unique to you, abilities that are unique to you, connections that are unique to you to in some way resist evil and do good for the people in your life and the community that you're in. But it's risky to risk your place in the palace, right? I mean, it's true. Is You really could perish from your place in the palace if you take steps to resist evil and speak up and maybe identify as a Christian and those kinds of things, maybe even be shown to be a hypocrite Christian because people have done certain things with you while you were in your palace. That's a hard thing, but you know what else? It's, when, when, when God has placed you in the palace, It's risky to do the thing that maybe God has placed you in the palace to do. Yes, it is. But on the other hand, if you don't risk it, if you just safely stay in the palace and stay silent and try to embrace the security of the palace, aren't you kind of, isn't the real you, isn't the real identity, aren't you kind of perishing already? Isn't, isn't that kind of a slow perishing? How do you know when it's the such a time as this that you should speak up? How do you know when it's time to, to do what it is, to say what you need, to, to come clean and to resist evil and do good in your position? Well, when the opportunity provides, I would imagine, but notice that Esther doesn't just say, if I perish, I perish, and then goes to the king. That's not what she does at all. And she says to Mordecai, go. And you get every Jew in the city of Susa to fast for three days. I'm going to do that. And my attendants are going to do that. And then I'll go to the king. She slows it way down. And even though it's not mentioned, it's almost impossible for the old Testament to talk about fasting without it being implied that she's also, and they're also praying. It's just that there's a literary device in Esther where it's going out of its way, not to mention God, to show what it's like from our end. They're fasting and they're praying and she's fasting and she's praying because she gets to a place where she's able to say, if I perish, I perish." And I think that switch inside of her, I think that switch from safe Esther to confident queen Esther happened because she, she transitioned how she saw her life from this to this. I think it was something, something like this, that I think she saw her life kind of like we do it's a cultural thing to see your life this way. And if we assimilate the culture, this is how we're going to see our life, that our life is our own. It's my life. I decide who I am and what I do and what's right for me. And well, I've made a decision that God is a good thing to have in my life. And so God is part of my life, but it's my life. I want God in my life. And that's why you know, we're all here, but, but it's my life. And Esther thought that way, no doubt, for at least five years but i think the transition is is this here where you know what it's god's everything god is like romans 11:36 says for from him and through him and for him are all things From him and through him and for him are all things. And so it's not that God is in my life, it's that I'm in his. He created me and I live through him and I live for him. And because God is life and there is no death when I'm in him, if I perish here, I perish, but my life is in God. For from him and through him and for him is your life, and everything in your life. This is the foundational reality. It's the foundation of reality from which everything else springs. And if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong in your life. From him and through him and for him is your life and everything in your life. And if you live for me, if you do the cultural assimilation thing and you're living your life for you and you have this belief that from you and through you and for you is your life and everything in your life. Well, that's not reality. And it's because it's not reality, your life is going to be filled with insecurity and anxiety and worry and stress be, because it's, a, it's an incredible weight to bear because it's not real. And you're just sort of slowly perishing under that weight. From him and through him and for him are all things. And that's why Esther had the transition where she was able to go from insecurity and wanting to be safe and all of a sudden take the risk and realize (laughs) if I perish I perish can you say that